Good morning, all saints. And my name's Scott, if we haven't met, and good morning to you if you're watching from another place. Well, I'm going to pray for us, friends, and uh, then we'll see if we can make some progress. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much that we can gather on a rainy day in a comfy building uh, with your people, and we pray that you would do business with us now, Lord. Show us afresh what you are like in Jesus and help us to trust you and to hear your call to follow you and to become more like you. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. All right. Well, I wonder if I ask you this question, you might think it's a bit weird, but in what way do you think you could be more like God? All right. In what way do you think you could be more like God? This is actually a question. If, you, if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, you might think this is weird. Um, if you're new with us, that's okay. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, what we've realised is that once we come to know God through Jesus, he doesn't just draw us to himself. He then starts making us more like himself. Right? Uh, those of us who begin to follow Jesus become slowly more like Jesus. That's what God does in our lives by his spirit. Um, and it's messy and it's slow. But that's, that's the New Testament vision for the Christian life, that we actually get to know God and then we become more like him. All right, In our values, in our character, in our priorities, uh, in the things we love. So in our, our Bible study groups this year, we're looking at uh, areas for growth. And some of us have set growth goals, you know, things we need to work on. Uh, we had a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and I've listed them up there in case you forgot them. Maybe one of these areas is something you'd like to work on. You'd like to become more joyful or peaceful or patient or kind or good, faithful, gentle, etc. Um, let me offer another suggestion if you haven't found a growth goal, that we become more global. What? <laughs> what does that mean? How is that anything like God? Well... I think we're going to see today what I mean by that. So stay tuned, stay tuned. Uh, what has just happened in the previous section in Mark chapter 7 is Jesus has rebuked a bunch of religious leaders for their fake cleanliness. They think they are religiously clean before God because they do all the customs. They wash their hands before meals, they cross themselves, they go to church, they kneel when they pray. They, they go through all the right religious actions and so they think that they are acceptable before God. But Jesus says, actually, your hearts are still dirty. You're clean on the outside because you keep all the external rites and customs, but on the inside, your hearts are far from me. And then Jesus moves from the unclean people who look clean to a region that is known to be an unclean region, a non-Jewish place called Tyre. In verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. This is up the coast from Israel. If you've been in that part of the world, it's modern-day Lebanon, basically. And Jesus is obviously seeking some private downtime, and so he isolates in a local house. But that does not stop one desperate mother who is deeply distressed, she finds him. And in verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter uh, was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So this woman is not Jewish. 
She is a Greek Gentile. The word Gentile just means nations. Right? In, in, in biblical worldview, you have the Jewish nation and then all the other nations, the Gentiles. So she's a Greek and she's from modern day Lebanon. She's a Gentile and therefore she was considered unclean, an unclean outsider. Not part of the right religious heritage or right religious club. And to make matters worse, her daughter has an unclean or an impure spirit, which does not help her case. But she is not discouraged. She desperately throws herself at Jesus' feet and she begs him to heal her daughter. And all I can say is, good luck. You see, the last time someone fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to heal their daughter, it was a guy called Jairus and he was a very important Jewish leader and Jesus followed him and healed his daughter but this woman is a dirty outsider good luck and to make matters worse Jesus response is kind of devastating in verse 27 Jesus says first let the children eat all they want he told her for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs whoa (laughs) yeah can you feel that one Whatever that means, it does not sound encouraging. What does he mean? Why is he implying that she's like a dog? Is Jesus a racist? Well, let's try to understand it. From the Jewish point of view, it was the Jews who were the children. They were the children of Abraham. You can read about that from Genesis 12. They were God's children, if you like, God's special people. But the dogs were the nation's. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, they were considered unclean, kind of like dogs, because they were without God and without his good laws. And the Jewish people thought that, that when, the, when the Messiah comes, the Jewish king, he would focus on blessing Israel. So what Jesus seems to be saying is, first, let the Jews, let the children have their fill because it's not right to take the Messiah's blessing for Israel and give it to the Gentile dogs. And it sounds wrong, right? It sounds racist. And it would be if Jesus actually meant it. I think Jesus is deliberately echoing the Jewish sentiments of the day, because this is the the way they spoke of Gentiles, He's deliberately echoing the Jewish sentiments of the day, not because he agrees with them, as we'll see, but because he wants to do two things. He wants to draw out this woman's persistent faith in him. He's he's testing the genuineness of her faith by pushing back a bit. Uh, Matthew 15, the other version, which is longer, makes this a bit more clear. And the second thing he's doing, I think, is correcting the watching disciples' assumptions by actually including her, as we'll see he does. He wants to teach them that a Gentile dog can actually be clean and acceptable in his sight. So firstly, Jesus is deliberately and provocatively drawing out her persistent faith because as he discourages her, she just keeps coming at him. Uh, She knows that Jesus can save and she's not going to take no for an answer. And what she serves up Next, is one of the greatest comebacks in the Gospels. It's not often, in fact, this might be the only time when someone apart from Jesus lands a cracker comeback. Uh, Let's just back it up a bit because it's worth it. So she begs Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus says it's not right to take the children's food and toss it to the dogs. And then without skipping a beat, she replies in verse 28, 
Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's not taking no for an answer. It's an incredibly clever retort. That's me being really clever. It took me about an hour to get that slide up. <laughs> it's like... Can you see how rather than being put off by Jesus' comment, she is emboldened to press in and on in her faith because she knows something. She knows that Jesus is good and is able and is willing at the end of the day. In fact, she knows kind of more about the God's plan for the Messiah than some of the disciples because she's kind of right that, yes, God's plan for the king, the Jewish king, is to offer salvation to Israel first, the children first, but then for that offer to overflow to the Gentiles, to the nations. All right? She knows that Gentiles, at the end of the day, still participate in the children's meal. Salvation is announced to Israel first because that was the prior arrangement that God made with them, uh, but then it overflows to the whole world. In other words, she knows, she senses that God's heart to bless the world through Israel does not exclude her. And so she presses on. And what will Jesus do? Will, will he get his back up because she came, came back with a good answer? Will he double down on his rebuff? No, he loves it. Of course, he's not going to reject her. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. He loves her response. He receives her. Yet back in chapter 6, Jesus was amazed at his hometown's lack of faith. But now he's far from home. He's far away from home and he's amazed at this Gentile's strong faith. And he loves it. So he heals her daughter. And the demon's gone in verse 30. You see, Jesus is not actually a racist. He's not saying that the Jews are superior and more worthy of salvation and the Gentiles are inferior and less worthy of salvation. That's not how it works. The promise to Israel was on the basis of grace, not works. And and as Romans 3 says, Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. We're in the same basket as humans. No one is entitled. All of us, in a sense, are dogs if you want to use that metaphor. Because we all have unclean hearts before God. That's what he's just demonstrated in the previous section, that the most well-to-do religious people actually have unclean hearts. And only Jesus can clean our hearts by trusting him. And here is a woman, an outsider, a dog, if you like. She trusts in Jesus and he heals her. He receives her and includes her and therefore he overturns that common racial slur that he's just used. In other words, she is not excluded on the basis of race. Rather, she is included on the basis of faith, as is anyone, Jew or Gentile. If you're a Jewish person and you don't have faith in Jesus, your Messiah, you're outside the kingdom. If you're a Gentile and you don't have faith in Jesus, you're outside the kingdom. If you're a Jew and you put your trust in Jesus, you're in his kingdom. If you're a Gentile and you put your trust in Jesus, you're in the kingdom. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you said, I need to rely on you to get me right with God? Because if you haven't, then you're unclean before God. And as we've seen, contrasted with the previous section, there is that irony that here is the unclean woman who's in. But the clean religious do-gooders, they're not in. 
Then Jesus moves on from this situation to another Gentile episode. He left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. He's been here in chapter 5, which is a Gentile region. And verse 32, there there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. So he's deaf and and mute. And they beg Jesus to place his hand on him. And and Jesus takes this man aside and performs, I don't know, I'd call it an unconventional miracle. (laughs) Have a look at it, verse 33. We got it there. He took him aside away from the crowd. Jesus, now you've got to picture this. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ear. (laughs) Then he spat. (laughs) I don't know where he spat. And touched the man's tongue. Maybe he spat on his hand. Maybe he spat in the guy's mouth and then touched his tongue. Doesn't say. It's just gross. (laughs) And then he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. Or however you pronounce that word, which means be opened. You get What's with the antics? I don't know. But it worked. <laughs> it worked. Strange indeed, but it works. At this, the man's ears were open. Bing! He can hear now. His tongue was loosed. He began to speak plainly. What's going on here? Well, these sort of miracles, which are strange and surprising, uh, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before, spoke about a time when God would come in the future to restore creation. And restore Israel to himself and to their kind of proper purpose. And one of the signs that he would be here is that he would perform these sensing miracles. Eyes opened, ears opened, mouth opened. Isaiah 35, for example. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness etc etc this is this, this image of restoration and fruitfulness and it will come when god arrives and what mark's telling us here by including this episode is and alluding to this passage from isaiah he's telling us that the agent of rescue and restoration i.e god himself he's here and guess what gentiles are part of his great restoration plan we're in a Gentile region, not just Jews. Next story, Jesus feeds a Gentile crowd. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and this is the days where he is ministering in the Decapolis region, which is a non-Jewish region, and there's a problem developing. People are hungry, and there's no food. Um, since you... Uh, We've got that yet. Since I had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. The disciples hear about this problem and, well, they think it's a hopeless cause without a solution. In verse 4, his disciple answers, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? The locals' bake, baker's delight is 20 k's away and there's no camels and I don't know. Actually, that's not, that's not the strange thing about this passage. The strange thing is only two chapters ago, Jesus fed 5,000 people. This is the second feeding miracle in Mark. There has been another one in chapter 6. You can go and read it. 
They have seen Jesus feed 5,000 people only two chapters ago in chapter 6. And they're saying, we can't solve this problem. We don't know what the solution is. So you're looking at them, dude. You're looking at him. <laughs> hey, Jesus, you know how you did that a few chapters ago? Can you do that again, please? They they're just confused. They don't understand. They don't get it. They're dummies. Thankfully, Jesus steps in and he takes seven bread loaves and a few fish. He gives thanks and he feeds the whole crowd. And in verse 8, we read, the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I don't know if you're a bit of an over-caterer. <laughs> Some people are. Uh, but Jesus over-catering here is not a sign of his bad planning. It's a sign of his abundant generosity. Chapter 6, there were 12 baskets left over. Here there are seven. What's it mean? What's going on with these two feeding miracles? You see, Jesus deliberately does two feeding miracles and Mark has located them. One chapter 6, one in chapter 8. He wants us to compare the two accounts and draw some sort of conclusion. Well, your homework could be you go to chapter 6, feeding miracle, and you what well, you draw two columns and you go similarities and differences and you list all the similarities and differences. That's fun. You'll find some good stuff there. But here's one of the key differences between the two feeding miracles. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 Jews. They ate and were satisfied. There was an abundance of leftovers. Chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles who are satisfied and there's abundance an abundance of leftovers. You see, we've moved from 5,000 Jews being satisfied by Jesus to 4,000 Gentiles being satisfied by Jesus. But we're not finished yet. You see, in between these two mass feedings, there is another little feeding of sorts. Didn't you think it was a bit weird how Jesus answered the, the, the lady's response about her demon-possessed daughter? Why does Jesus respond to her request by mentioning bread? Heal my, please heal my demon-possessed... I mean, I don't suddenly... My mind doesn't suddenly go to bread. <laughs> Why suddenly resort to a bread metaphor in response? Well, I think Jesus is deliberately linking these three bread-feeding episodes. Chapter 6, bread. Chapter 7, bread. Chapter 8, bread. What's with all the bread? And there's more references, there's more references to bread that I've alluded, than I've alluded to here. And there's more, you see. There's more little, there's a little gem here because the bread being tossed to the dog's reference has another hidden gem in it that we might not have seen because of our translations. The, here is a literal translation of three verses. Chapter 6, they all ate and were satisfied. Chapter 7, let the children be satisfied first. Chapter 8, they ate and were satisfied. Can you see there's, there's some threads building this whole section together we have this thread of, of eating bread and being satisfied repeated three times why does this observation matter well i actually think it helps us to make what sense of the big point <laughs> the big point seems to be this yes jesus the messiah is bringing blessings to the jews first chapter six five thousand satisfied Right? And they get overflowing abundance with leftovers. But guess what? It overflows to the Gentiles. They get to participate in not just the spillover crumbs. 
Actually, they get just as much as the Jews, chapter 8. An abundance with leftovers. This Gentile woman's daughter is healed just like the respectable Jairus' daughter. And on the same basis, faith. They get the same blessing from King Jesus. And so Gentiles don't just get the crumbs. That's the point. They get equal and full rights to all the kingdom's blessings. If this section wasn't in Mark, we might end up thinking that Jesus is just a Jewish king for Jewish people. But Mark, the whole Bible is saying, actually, God loves the whole world. He wants to bless the whole world through Israel, through the Messiah that came from Israel. Salvation is from the Jews, but it's for the world. And so Jesus, the Messiah, shares his abundant blessings with Israel and the whole world. So what are the implications? Well, have you benefited from King Jesus? Most of us here are probably Gentiles. Some of you might have Jewish heritage, but most of us, I take, most of us, I take it, probably don't. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 says about us, Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, or called dogs, in a, if you want the derogatory term, Remember, verse 12, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That is not a list of positive traits. But now, verse 13, in Christ you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've been included The blessings that have come through Israel have come to us and we've been grafted in and blessed abundantly. And this should thrill us to bits. Now we have God in the world. Now we have hope. Now we have the blessings of uh, of forgiveness and eternal life. You see, Jesus came to provide salvation for the world and he offers it to the world, to anyone and everyone, all people groups, all languages, all tribes, all categories. And in Mark 13, he says, this gospel must be preached to the nations before the end. He hasn't just come for a select bunch of people. He's come for the whole world. And we can take up that mantle and spread that message and get on board with God's global vision. So if you have benefited, I take it, you you, you get on board. It's like, oh, This doctor healed me and you have the same illness. Can I introduce you to this wonderful doctor? That's how it works. We want to share the good news with those around us. We've benefited from God's worldwide vision and so we want others to benefit. We want others to come and know his great saving love. So we want to get on board with, I take it as Christians, we will get on board with God's global vision. Uh, It's easy and natural for us to have local and parochial concerns and that's not wrong. You should be concerned about the immediate. (laughs) You're responsible for that. This is not about negating those local concerns but expanding our concerns to include God's global cause. It's great to belong to a church that has a number of causes that are global. 
to lift our eyes up to the horizons. Okay, we've got a, a bunch of mission partners over there. If you don't know who they are, have a look so that you can increase your awareness. Compassion has increased our um, global awareness, hasn't it, as a community? Our various missionary partnerships, we've got people who have served in Africa and Eastern Europe and, and, and Middle East. We've got 10% of our budget that goes towards these global concerns. That's brilliant. These are great things. But I reckon I still need to be reminded regularly that God has a global heart and a global cause and he's doing global things that, that I can be aware of and should be aware of so that I can support. And The other thing that we need to realise is that many nations, they're not just out there, they've come to us, haven't they? Now, even the Epping area is a bit of an international melting pot. And most of us have come from other nations. In fact, probably all of us in this room. Right? We are the nations <laughs> living in each other's, on each other's doorsteps. So who's reaching out to them with the good news of Jesus? Because Jesus came for all nations. When it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us, oops, um, there's three basic things. There's the conviction. You know, you, you actually believe in your bones that actually Jesus ought to be recognised by everyone. And without him, people are in great danger. The people need Jesus. They were made by him. They, they, they've, we've rejected him. He's died for us to bring us back to him. We, we need him. That's the conviction. Then, then the connection comes on top of that. It's just building relational connections with those around us, loving people in the name of Jesus, and then communicating, sharing the good news of Jesus with people, providing opportunities for people to hear something of the gospel. And uh, I want to end on a few tips, if you like, for us to be more intentional in being global. The first one is pray. Pray for your own heart. Right? Uh, come before God, yourself, on your own, with the scriptures open, and confess your small-mindedness. Confess your over, overly parochial concerns. Confess any lurking racism. Confess your love of comfort and an unwillingness to go outside your comfort zone. Confess your lack of global concern. Ask God to change you, to make you more like him, to make you more like Jesus who came to seek and save people from all tribes and all nations to welcome the outsider. Secondly, pray for our mishos. Pray for global harvest workers. That's going to put it in your mind. God will use your prayers for his global cause. I know of one Bible study group that decided to include praying for missionary partners every week. So it's just, it's just locked and loaded each week. Otherwise, all those kind of local concerns take over, which is fine. But they've just locked it in because they want to have a global perspective and be reflecting God's missionary heart. The third thing to pray for is your global neighbours. Global. You heard that one? <laughs> global people who are local, <laughs> which is most of us. When you see them in the garden or when you see them walking their dog, when you see them at the train station, when you see them sitting in cafes, pray for them. 
Pray that God would raise up Christians to connect with them and care for them. Pray for opportunities for you to connect with them. Pray that God would soften their hearts to the good news of Jesus. Pray for your local neighbours. Then, know. Just get to know them. You have the good news of Jesus. Someone doesn't. Unless there's some sort of interrelationship, connection, they're probably not going to hear about Jesus. So don't ignore them. Get to know them. Invite them over. Go for a bushwalk. Go for a ride. Grab a coffee. Invite them to watch the game. Uh, Invite them over for a barbecue or whatever it is. I actually spoke to a woman from Africa recently, only two weeks ago now. I asked her what her impressions of Australia were. She said a number of fascinating things. One of the things she said that kind of got my back up a bit was, you're not very friendly. I went, what? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) What she meant was that we tend to retreat into our houses and don't warmly welcome the surrounding neighbours. In Africa, that's a thing. You just sort of, sort of open house policy. Now, there's a cultural difference there that we need to be aware of and sensitive to. But there's a challenge as well there, isn't there? If it's true of us as Christians that we do retreat into our castle and kind of pull up the, the drawbridge, we have the resources to break that trend. We know the most generously hospitable person in the universe who opened up his kingdom and welcomed us into his banquet and is making us more like him. So, yeah, invite your local neighbours over. Don't worry if you can't cook the world's best hot pot or curry or whatever it is. In fact, ask them to bring their favourite traditional dishes. They'll be stoked to do that and share it with you. They'll love the opportunity. And you don't have to be an expert in cross-cultural communication. You don't have to be. Because love covers over a multitude of cultural faux pas. (laughs) Just love them well. Be generous. And over time you'll work out how to be culturally sensitive, etc. But you don't have to be an expert in it to begin. You just have to love generously. So get to know and then the third one is invite them. Invo- invite them to a churchy type thing where they're going to hear something about the gospel. Because faith comes through hearing the word. All right? Do not in- underestimate the simple but powerful ministry of the invitation. It's, it's, it's one of the most underutilized and underrated strategies for the gospel. Just inviting someone to something. That's it. Okay? So many lives have been changed because that was the first action that took place. You're probably a Christian because someone invited you to something and then invited you again and invited you here and then you ended up hearing about Jesus and so many stories. Simple invitations to a Christian event where you meet other Christians, to a church-related event, to church itself, to your Bible study group, to the, the youth do it really well. They're inviting their friends on Friday night and they're hearing the gospel. It's so simple. of course sometimes it's fear that will stop us from inviting someone but here's the question what's the worst that could happen if you invited them to church or bible study well the worst that could happen is that they they kill you that is the worst thing that could happen isn't it they could pull out a gun and shoot you because they didn't like the invitation but is that likely to happen no no They might politely decline, 
with a smile and a thanks, but no thanks. <gasps> That's hardly persecution. <laughs> but you'd be surprised how often people are actually are interested and will thank you for the invite and actually take it up. Do not underestimate the power of the ministry of the humble invite. Pray, meet, invite. And then the last one is tell. Go tell. Be willing to consider going to another less rich place to share the good news of Jesus yourself. Why, why should we sort of absolve ourselves of that challenge? doesn't matter how old we are. There's a, a world in need out there. And remember, if you're not one who is sent, then you're a sender. We need to have that mindset, don't we? Maybe I'm not the one sent to go out and do that, but I want to be a sender because I'm on Team Jesus who's, and he has a global mind. Okay? What we see in this passage today is that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, but for the nations, for all kinds of... Outs- all of us are outsiders. All of us have unclean hearts. And he has a global heart. He has a global vision. So... If you're wondering, how can I become a little bit more like God? Well, here's a, here's a way to share his global heartbeat. And there's a number of things that I've suggested to help progress you in that area. How about I pray for us? <clears throat> Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you created all nations, all peoples of all nations, and that you love them. And that you sent Jesus to die for people of all nations, like us that you are passionate about rescuing and transforming people, no matter who they are or what they're like or where they're from. And thank you that you involve us in your global plans and passions, Lord. You use our little efforts to reach out, to pray, to invite, to show hospitality. Please help us to reflect your heart and mind on this issue more and more, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.